Let's ask the Lord to continue to lead us during this time. Father, we have already sung the emphasis of this section of Ephesians. Our debt has been paid. The victory has been won. Lord, you are our salvation. Father, I pray that as we, as we trust in Christ during this time and as we're led by your spirit, I pray that you would push aside fears and frustrations that may be a part of our lives because of the craziness of things over the past several months in its place. I pray that humble confidence would rise among your people. Lord, we love you, and we are joyful to confess our dependence upon you. But because of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ, we are confident. So lead us during this time, I pray, through the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought about how much time we spend in our lives just getting ready? In the morning, we're, we're getting ready for the day, whether we're getting coffee ready or we're getting ready to work out or getting ready to have breakfast or getting ready to go to work. At work, we're getting ready for our next meeting or getting ready for the next rush of customers or getting ready for the boss to come in in a few minutes or getting ready to, to set that next post or getting ready to send the next product out. We may be getting ready for lunch. Uh, we could be getting ready for the manager's reaction to our last mistake. Or if you're at home, you might be getting kids ready for school or getting, getting the dog ready for its appointment or getting ready to receive a particular phone call that, that you've just been dreading. You might be getting ready for Bible study or getting ready to teach Sunday school or getting the house ready for company. You might be getting ready to make big plans for fall break, which is, strangely enough, just in a couple weeks. It's hard to know we even started, right? <laughs> you might be getting your house ready for the cooler temperatures this fall and trying to think through the list of what things you want to get done before winter. In our passage today, Paul challenges us to be ready and to stay ready. The question is, ready for what? Our passage is Ephesians 6.15, and just to keep that flow of thought going, I want to begin reading in verse 10 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of our glorious God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So, Lord, would you lead us then during this time now? Help us. Strengthen us. Amaze us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, to rightly understand our singular verse for this morning, I think we need to do two things. First, we need to understand the connection between the kind of strange phrase that Paul uses here, the, the imagery of fitted shoes and how that relates to readiness within the flow of Ephesians 6. And then secondly, I want to explore the ideas that Paul is drawing from Isaiah 52, in particular verse 7, but even further than that to verse 11 and even into chapter 53 of Isaiah. I want to think through how this informs Paul's understanding of the gospel of peace. So let's first look at Ephesians 6. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, having the right shoes on for a particular job is really, really important. From personal experience, if you're going to be moving heavy furniture up and down stairs all day, a cheap pair of flip-flops, probably not the best choice, right? If you're going rock climbing, you don't want to have on roller skates or you don't want to have on snowshoes, those are going to be of no value whatsoever. If you're playing basketball or volleyball in a gym, high heels, not going to work, neither are dress shoes. Further, the the shoes actually have to be properly fitted to your feet in order to be maximally effective. I remember my brother telling me the story from when he was in Marine boot camp where the DIs dumped everybody's stuff into one giant pile and then gave him 90 seconds to get ready to go on this long hike. And he went off for this 18-mile hike wearing a size 8.5 shoe on one foot and a size 13 on the other He came back with a blistered foot and basically a bloody stump at the end of that trek. Not fun. Now, within within the flow of Ephesians 6, the next piece of spiritual armor that Paul mentions is shoes for our feet, representing the, the, the readiness given by the gospel of Peace. So, so let's just think through this a little bit together because it's kind of a strange phrase. Now, in terms of the first imagery that might come to mind as it relates to battle gear, we might first think of something like the boots that Roman soldiers would wear that were kind of uh, sandals that wrapped up and around the lower part of the ankle, and they'd actually put nails embedded into the shoes to make them kind of a like a makeshift uh, football cleat or something of that nature. It gave them good traction. They weren't good for running fast, but they were good for standing firm and engaging someone in 
battle. And I think that's part of the imagery that he's bringing to mind as he's thinking about standing firm here in the flow of Ephesians 6. But I want to remind us that the primary imagery that Paul is using is all drawn from the Old Testament. In this case, specifically chapter 52 and verse 7 of the prophet Isaiah. Hear these words. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, just like the people of Isaiah's day who were experiencing just a a devastating time of oppression under the hand of Assyria and then later by Babylon. Paul wanted the Ephesians also to be ready for the ongoing challenges that they would face as they sat under Roman rule and, and, and under the kingdom of darkness, which ultimately would be Satan's rule. Now, this imagery of beautiful feet drawn from Isaiah 52, 7 it helps us to understand where Paul is placing his emphasis here. Now, in the, in the days before social media and before Google, news traveled much more slowly than it does today. Think about being in a city, maybe behind some secure walls, and, and your city or your nation is engaged in a battle with some other country at another location. Your loved ones are off fighting in that battle. How much would you anticipate hearing news of what's happening? Pause for a moment, and I want you to just consider where you primarily turn to get your good news. Think about that for a moment. These people would be looking, they'd look towards the mountains or towards a ridge or something of that nature, hoping for for some clue that a messenger was coming, that is a herald of hopefully good news. And what they would try to do is to to look and see the gait of the runner, that is his his pace and his posture, and try to determine, is he running in a a quick-footed manner? Does his body look joyful? Is he anticipating being able to run into the city and say, your God reigns? Because so often the winner of the battle and that city's or nation's God was considered to be the victor. And they wanted to hear, your God reigns. You have been victorious. The battle is over. A runner or a messenger who had good news to share, would run his course with joy because God had won the battle and God was reigning. Now, in a similar fashion as we consider some of the craziness of the last several months, we offer these words as a reminder and as an encouragement. In this particular cultural moment, let us remember that Ultimately, in this time of economic uncertainty, the stock market does not ultimately reign. The presence and impact of disease 
does not reign over us. The opinions of any number of medical or sociological or scientific analysts, though important, do not ultimately reign. As we near what promises to be a a fascinating presidential election, the language of political commentators does not reign. Further, the word of our own judicial and legislative and executive branches does not reign for us as the people of God. The policies of other nations do not reign. The words of prosperity preachers and other false teachers do not reign. The behavior of activist organizations do not reign. The influence of Hollywood on our culture does not reign. The agendas of academic institutions do not reign. The word of the media does not reign. Social media posts and comments do not reign. For that matter, the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, let us remind ourselves, do not ultimately reign. But my beloved brothers and sisters of River Oaks, may I remind us what is true. May remind us what has been true, what will be true in the future, and what is true at this very moment. Indeed, at this point in history, at such a time as this, our God reigns. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he and he alone reigns. The God of Israel, the God of the living and the The judge of the dead, he reigns. The Father, Son, and Spirit to whom we just sung. That one true God reigns over heaven and earth. Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday and now and forever reigns. The Alpha and Omega reigns. The one who is faithful and true reigns. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come reigns over us. Our God the light of the world, the bread of life, the good shepherd, the true vine, the Satan slayer, the sin coverer, the substitute provider, the cross bearer, the grave defeater, the invincible and ever-present joy of his people. The great I am. He and he alone reigns. And that is good news for us. The good news of the gospel begins with the good news, and in this case, a not-so-subtle reminder, that our God reigns. Brothers and sisters, we have to soak in this, which is why I was asking where you typically get your good news. Where do you turn? It's important to think about because we're constantly taking things in from the world which needs to be contrasted with what we're taking in from the Word. We are continuously bombarded, so we need to soak. From one Sunday to the next Sunday isn't going to cut it. Often what we hear from the world leads to this this sense of frustration or this sense of fear. What we learn and are reminded of from God's word often leads to our comfort and our peace and our joy. To have our feet fitted 
with the shoes of gospel readiness means we must rest in the gospel of peace ourselves in order to proclaim the gospel of peace to others. Think back to our intro. What do we need to be ready for? What is God calling us to do? In the first place, in the flow of Ephesians 6, we're called to withstand the assault of the enemy. And as that passage progresses, we are further called to advance on the enemy. As verses 14 through 18 kind of pick up, you'll notice progressively we move from a defensive posture of standing firm to a more aggressive posture as we wield the sword of the Spirit for the kingdom of God. The essence of how we should think about this is that our gospel rootedness is what fuels our gospel readiness. In other words, the more we personally revel in the reality of the redemption Jesus has provided for us, the more clearly we see the fullness of the, of the freedom purchased for us by Christ, the more joy that we have in Jesus, the more we understand and are amazed at what Jesus has actually accomplished on our behalf, the more urgently and excitedly we will run with shoes for our feet fitted with gospel readiness to tell others about Jesus. Look, what you see about Jesus in the word is what fuels what you're going to say about him in the world. So if you think Jesus is pretty good at making your life a little better, you're, that's what you're going to tell people. But that gospel stinks. But if you, if you look in God's word and see, see the reality of your condition before God, Behold the love that the Father has in, in sending his Son to us. Behold the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you say, I need that. I desperately need that. But God is my anchor and my strength and my joy. You're going to say, let me tell you about Jesus. You need him. I need him. And he's awesome. In other words, the more... The more rooted we are in the gospel, the more ready we will be to share the gospel. Think about running into somebody at the gym or, or, or at work or one of your neighbors or something like that. And they walk up to you because they just saw something on the news and they're like, man, I got to tell you, this world these days is nuts. Now, that might resonate with you at some level, Right? But, but is, the, is the instinctual, is the, reflect, is the reflexive posture of your heart to commiserate with them in the craziness of the world and the misery of the things that are happening and how frustrating or fear-inspiring that might be? Or, or is the reflexive nature of your heart to say, God, okay, fit, fit my shoes with the readiness of the gospel. Here's an opportunity. I have a message that brings hope to the world. It's so different from everything else that, that we've been hearing through the news cycles. I have the gospel. I could present that to him. I can, I can encourage them with this news. I mean, for all of us, we need to be thinking very intentionally about that. But what I'm submitting to you is the more that we soak in the reality of the gospel itself, the more reflexively that will spill out into gospel-related conversations 
a readiness, a willingness, a preparedness to share good news with others. Now, We've been arguing thus far in Ephesians 6 that the armor of God is, is more than just the armor that God provides for us in our spiritual warfare battle. Metaphorically speaking, it's the actual armor that God himself wore when he redeemed us. Therefore, if we think about it in these terms, we would be strong in the strength of his might, verse 10, when we demonstrate our trust in the great work of salvation that God has already accomplished for us. That's gospel rootedness. That's digging our roots in the gospel down deep when we are cultivating that trust in God's work on our behalf. Then when we seek to declare that great work of salvation to others, that's gospel readiness. That's having our, our shoes on our feet, ready to run with the good news. Picture that runner coming across the ridge and saying, I can't wait, I can't wait to proclaim this in the city. Your God reigns. Can you imagine going to your neighbors and saying, I know it's been tough, but I can't wait to tell you this. Do you know the God of heaven and earth, he reigns over this chaos and I know him and you can too? That's radically different than just saying, yeah, I know, things are tough. Now, what is utterly amazing to me about this passage from Isaiah 52 and verse 7 and following is that this declaration of good news flows immediately into the most descriptive passages of the atoning work of the Messiah or the Deliverer who is to come in all of the Old Testament. In fact, I'd say it's probably the most descriptive this is probably the clearest description of the atoning work of Jesus anywhere in the Bible with the exception of the book of Hebrews. But turn with me to Isaiah 52 for a moment. <clears throat> I want to look together at this flow of thought. So picking up in verse 7, which is the, the, the central verse, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In Genesis 1, when God creates the universe, one of the ends of like verse 16 or something says, oh, and the stars. Oh, and he created the stars with his voice. But here it says when he saved his people, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work. And he got a little bit of an omnipotent bicep poking out from underneath his shirt. God's flexing here when he saves his people. He says, depart 
Depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. And we think, it's safer in here. Out there is crazy. Do we really need to go on the move? Here's where our confidence comes from. One, our God reigns. Two, he has redeemed his people. Three, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go out in flight. In other words, go out confidently without fear. For the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Look at immediately where it moves to. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Who's this? This is the deliverer. This is the Messiah who is to come. This is Jesus. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, as we have already sung this morning, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we were healed. This is the gospel of peace in the Old Testament. How does peace come? It comes from the reality that God reigns, that we have been redeemed, and that our Lord will both guide us and guard us. In other words, what is there to fear? We're talking about God here. Ultimately, this redemption is described in the announcement of the coming Messiah and his atoning work on behalf of God's people, the end of Isaiah 52 and into 53. This is the good news in which we must be rooted because this good news is what fuels our gospel readiness. Now, as Isaiah 52 and 53 point forward to the one who was to come, who we know is Jesus, we rejoice at the fact that the gospel of peace is ultimately a proclamation about the person and work of the prince of peace himself, who made a way for us to be reconciled to God and to one another through the cross. How powerful is that message today? Not only can you be reconciled to God, we can be reconciled to one another. And let's not forget, this is the overarching theme of the book of Ephesians. I mean, I know we've been doing a deep dive <laughs> over the last several months, but if we zoom out just a little bit, this book describes Gentiles and Jews coming together as one body. 
amazing. Now, as we think about how we might cultivate, cultivate an ever-deepening gospel grounding or gospel rootedness in our lives, we would do well to think through the realities of what God has accomplished for us in Ephesians 1. One thing we need to not do is, is, is to just look inward and say, I've been thinking about my faith, I've been thinking about my life, and I'm, I'm just finding myself fearful and frustrated. Rather, we need to point ourselves to Jesus. We need to look up to the Prince of Peace. Charles Spurgeon wisely counseled, the peace within the soul is not derived from our contemplation of our faith, but it comes to us from him who is our peace. This is simple, but a very helpful reminder because it's easy to get into the swirl when you're constantly being bombarded with bad news. So, brothers and sisters, this morning, rejoice in the work of your Savior. Consider freshly the reality of what he has accomplished. Let's, let's look back at Ephesians for just a moment. Beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Even if things are difficult now, see that through this lens. Whatever it is that you're facing, and be hopeful. Because there was a time when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And remember, chapter 6, the context is spiritual warfare and you were captured. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath. That is God's wrath. God's infinitely holy wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, you didn't get a raw deal. You got the best deal imaginable, whatever your circumstances are, if you belong to Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God got ready or prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you hear verse 10? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. In other words, our readiness, our preparedness is ultimately rooted in God's readiness and preparedness on our behalf. So the things that he's calling to now that might seem like a break in routine or a detour from normal life 
are in fact works that God has prepared since before the foundations of the world for us to do. So we need to seize the opportunity right now, which is why we have to fill ourselves with the good news of the gospel so that it spills out in our conversations with everyone else. Look, the world is in a precarious place and we have the only solution. We have to be willing to speak about it and there's nothing to fear. Our God reigns. He has redeemed us. He guides us. He guards us. We are secure in him. Look, we think, oh man, this everything that's happened is kind of ruining my future. Read your future in chapter two. The whole thing is about him immeasurably giving us everything we could possibly imagine and more. Sharing himself with us forever and ever and ever. We've got nothing to worry about. So let's be bold. Let's be bold in conversation and seize those opportunities. Now, as we think about our readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace to others, fueled by our rootedness in the peace that comes from him, who is our very peace, consider also that our proclamation of the good news is rooted in Jesus' own proclamation of the good news. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18. At one point, we were all separated from God, and we had no hope in the world. Which, for the record, that's really bad news. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, which is really good news. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Then verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. So our call to preach the good news about Jesus is rooted in the fact that Jesus came and preached the good news about Jesus. Our message is only slightly different. In Jesus' case, he was drawing people to himself. In Jesus' case, he said, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from the exhaustion. Rest from the chaos in the world. Rest from the chaos in your heart. You can have my peace. I am your peace. I am the prince of peace. The only difference for us is that we're pointing away from ourselves to Jesus with that exact same message. Be reconciled to God and you can be reconciled to one another. Come to Jesus who is our peace. How hopeful is it to be able to speak into the world right now and say, someone has solved the problem of sin Someone has solved the problem of partiality and racism. Someone solved the problem and his name is Jesus. And you can come to him and be saved. You could be reconciled to God, which will free you to be reconciled with one another. That's really the only message that will help the world. 
Or if you're marginalized, you can be brought near. Did you hear the words from Ephesians 2? You can be brought near by the blood of Christ. Jesus has made us both one and broken down the wall of hostility by making peace through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It might be true that I hate you and that you hate me. But Jesus did a work on the cross that fixes that problem. He killed the hostility. Because there is no room. If you see your own sin clearly, there is no room for partiality in any direction at the foot of the cross. I used to have a picture of the Global Center for World Peace, better known as the United Nations Building in New York City. I had a picture of it up in my office, and it's a picture of the building with all the flags hanging outside of it, and there's Jesus on the outside of the building knocking on the window. And the title of the painting is The Prince of Peace. Jesus is the only hope for peace. And we know that. We have that message. And so, brothers and sisters, may God strengthen us to communicate that message in this unique cultural moment. Let the joy of what we know to be true about Jesus, let the joy and confidence of our gospel rootedness, let that fuel our gospel readiness as we seek to proclaim the good news that Jesus, who is our peace, has made a way for everyone in the world to be reconciled to God and to one another. That's a message worth sharing. Would you pray with me? Father, we gladly confess our dependence upon you. We, we can't move our own hearts, let alone move someone else's heart. But, Father, we are 100% confident that the joy of the gospel, the good news of great joy that came to earth is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the solution to every problem the world has right now. And so would you, would you cast out fear from our hearts and give us spilling out joy and tremendous confidence so that when we have opportunity, we would be ready to share that good news. Lead us to that end now as we rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.